I can't remember the last time that I went and saw a movie in theaters. I remember the last time I went, I saw Cats. Cats the musical? They made a movie out of that? You didn't know? It was horrifying. I think I heard something about it, but luckily I didn't subject myself to that. I am excited, though. I saw a trailer the other day for the new Black Panther movie. Oh. Wakanda Forever. I did really enjoy the uh, initial Black Panther. When was that? A few years ago now, huh? And then we had the subsequent snap in the Avengers Infinity War. And I think for most people, the Black Panther disappearing was probably the most heartbreaking. Well, definitely a beloved figure. And very sadly, the actor did pass away within the last couple of years as well. Yeah, that was a rough one, too. The actor himself just seemed like a stand-up guy that was able to accomplish a lot in an unfortunately short amount of time. But also that franchise, just the idea of Wakanda, I think, resonates really deeply with a lot of people. That is something that has created quite a a thought experiment, I guess, in our social consciousness. What would be the outcome if there was a country capable of avoiding colonization? The narrative of a, a place free from colonization is also obviously pertinent for the continent of Africa. And the viewers who feel most connected to that narrative, I think, really appreciate a portrayal like that in the Black Panther movies. Yeah, Chadwick Boseman actually pushed for the accent that he used, that it would not have any European influence to reflect that that country had been so protected from outside forces. Mm -hmm. When I watch movies that cater to a very specific demographic, I guess I'm a little bit jaded, but to me, too often it seems as though it's tokenistic or a cash grab on the part of the studio. But with Black Panther, they seem to do a legitimately, genuinely good job of portraying the diversity in a way that was authentic and not tokenistic at all. That didn't stop people from critiquing it. But I take your point. Sometimes media can be a little heavy handed with this representation rather than telling the story and putting the focus on the actual narrative and just trying to get equity check marks on a, on a list that they're supposed to hit. I'm super disillusioned with stuff like that. So if it's there, I'm seeing it. For example, in Infinity War, or maybe it was Endgame, I don't know, there's too many Avenger movies. You had the scene where all of the lady superheroes were flying together across the battlefield in formation. How they all got together, not really sure. Why they're all flying like that in the same spot of a battlefield, not really sure. Tokenism, out the ass. That one bugged me. I know why they were all flying together like that. It's because their periods were synced up. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so not a good job, Marvel, on that one. But Wakanda, good job. Shang-Chi, not a good job. Oh, I liked that one. Uh, but super tokenistic. I've talked to a lot of people who had some pretty serious criticisms of the accents. Interesting that you bring up Chadwick Boseman pushing for a particular accent because a lot of people I've talked to were troubled by the fact that everybody in Shang-Chi, which definitely a cash grab in my opinion on that one, that was supposed to come from the same village actually had completely different accents. Kind of a fail there. Well, that's why I can't really speak to cultural accuracy of these sorts of things. And I can't discern when one thing is done super well and uh, with actual representation like that. Um, so I like to defer a lot to the people who would actually know a lot better. So now, least favorite Marvel film, you you persuaded me. <laughs> yes, mission accomplished. <laughs> the reason that Black Panther and hopefully Wakanda Forever are so relevant too is because the idea of Africa as a continent and its mission or struggle to develop is something that millions of people are faced with as a as a reality of their existence uh, still to this day even though the world in general is theoretically developing and progressing exactly africa has as a continent experienced a lot of situations that have delayed some of the developments and innovations and infrastructure that we would see in a lot of other places 
I think this is when it's important to note that Africa, unlike what probably a lot of Americans would think, is not homogenous. Mm-hmm. It's it's a continent with multiple different countries and different ethnic groups and different cultural values across it. Mm-hmm. Throughout this episode where we talk about African development and strategies that it might take and challenges that it's facing, we'll try to maintain the diversity when we discuss the different countries and the challenges that they face or the advantages that they might have. But there are a lot of common challenges that the continent as a whole faces as well. So I guess it's just important to note that a lot of times it is sort of referred to as this one, the country of Africa. So hopefully we can catch ourselves and avoid uh, making that same mistake throughout the episode. But we will have some of that rhetoric emerge because a lot of the other entities that interact with Africa do sort of lack the distinction. So today we've got Wakanda, which articulates this narrative of Black prosperity, dreaming up a universe in which an African nation is the richest in the world, and finally offers audiences an optimistic glimpse of a proud future for Africa. And the question then is, is that something that can become a reality in our world? How does Africa develop given the reality of today's global, geopolitical, and economic statuses? Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. On today's episode of Indubitably, we'll be talking about development on the African continent, and we'll be covering a couple of the major subject areas that are pertinent to that. First, we'll be discussing the relationships that the continent or individual countries have internationally or internally in the continent. And second, we'll discuss how to use the resources that exist on the continent, specifically fossil fuels. And maybe it's useful to start with just a little bit of context on what is Africa's current developmental status. The unfortunate reality of the situation is that growth in Africa has seemed to stall. Both the IMF and the World Bank have cut their original economic growth projections for sub-Saharan Africa down to 3.5 and 2.8% respectively. And growth in 2018 was at 2.3%. This is all obviously pre-pandemic, and things certainly have not gotten better since then. Poverty is also an increasing issue. 437 million of the world's extreme poor are in sub-Saharan Africa, and 10 of the 19 most unequal countries in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. The World Bank projects that if poverty reduction measures and growth remain sluggish, Africa could be home to 90% of the world's poor by 2030. All right. So obviously, this is a pretty serious issue. Things haven't been looking great necessarily, at least not looking at the numbers. But there are some geopolitical and economic things that are happening that could give us hope that we could turn these trends around. And The first thing that we're going to talk about is what you mentioned in the outline, Kelly, which is the relationships that Africa is building, both externally and internally. While we're in a very advanced global economy, the world still experiences relative isolation. A lot of trading partners are limited by geographic proximity or other established infrastructure that facilitates things such as transporting goods and services across oceans. Mm -hmm. And historically, this has been a big problem for the continent of Africa. Just considering the type of internal and international conflict and crises that exist for that region, it makes trade and development incredibly challenging. That being said, in the last decade, though, as technology has increased, the ease of global relationships, this provides new opportunities for the continent. And Similarly, as world superpowers look to expand their influence, they are looking to diversify relationships from historic allies to find new partnerships. So the question here is, who does Africa turn to in order to establish economic relations and seek investment? And the answer so far for this particular situation has been China. Ooh, our favorite. 
<laughs> mm, favorite in uh we love to talk about it or favorite as in we think that it's a great international actor who knows listen listen to some taiwan episodes or what have you and find out for sure we have been uh relatively critical of china in a couple of episodes in the past recently we talked about china's social credit system and definitely some merit there so we weren't completely critical of china and i think this episode is going to mirror that one where maybe some good maybe some bad about africa's relationship with that country the first thing to note about this relationship that China has with the continent is that China has infrastructure in almost every African country. Right. They've definitely targeted Africa as a very intentional strategy in terms of their international economic efforts. For an example, uh, China and Tanzania have a partnership in which Chinese corporations give a loan to the country of Tanzania, who in turn uses that money to build housing. But that housing is constructed by Chinese companies. But, but, but those Chinese companies are using Tanzanian labor in order to do most of the work. So it seems like a relatively symbiotic relationship where China's giving money that Tanzania needs. In return, Chinese companies are benefiting. In return, Tanzanian labor and workers are benefiting. And can there be three returns? In return, 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 the people of Tanzania are enjoying the benefits of established infrastructure and housing that wasn't there previously. You have to wonder, though, is China making out better than Tanzania is in these situations? Is it really just happy, wonderful benefits for all? Or is there potentially some exploitation of the circumstance that's happening? Mm hmm. So Tanzania is one example, but this is happening all over the continent. Like you said, uh, China has infrastructure in almost every African nation, and it all seems amazing. The concern comes from the term debt trap diplomacy. And this is something that has been predominantly put forward in American circles. A little bit of hating going on here on the part of America towards China. A little bit mad that we weren't there first, I think. But the idea of debt trap diplomacy is basically suggesting that through these sorts of deals and through this sort of investment, China is able to secure various nations within the continent of Africa and create a sense of reliance on China, which then gives them power both economically and we'll talk about later politically over these nations. When it comes to international lending, in the types of situations that could be possible when we're talking about two countries or two entities working together, there are three different types of ways that money can be loaned to another country. First, there are 0% interest loans, which might be more viewed as international aid. We see things like that probably with micro lending and other types of foreign aid that is meant to get people out of desperate circumstances in a sustainable way. There are then concessional loans, which would be loans that are at a more preferable rate than it would be if it was just a strictly business transaction. And then there are commercial loans, which would be, this is the rate that we offer in a business transaction. We're taking in no consideration what your economic or social circumstances are. This is strictly business. This is what the bank offers me when I tell them I want to buy a Mustang for my midlife crisis. Are we at midlife yet? Are we already... Talking about sports cars? This is theoretical. I'm not there quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the interest rates and the loan terms are one thing that leads people to be skeptical over China's offer, quote unquote, of investment into African nations. But there's also more specific stipulations in the contracts that worry people. For example, China is allowed to take action against the borrower if the borrower acts in a way that is contrary to the interest of a PRC or People's Republic of China entity. Kind of vague language there that gives the lender's side, in this case, China or the Chinese corporations, definitely more power than the borrower, the African nation side. I'm viewing that a Tanzanian citizen gets a, a loan from China and then writes a burn book about China wouldn't give me preferential loan rates. They gave me the same rate they would give everybody else. China 
sucks as a country and then China would renege on the loan terms or something with them. I'm imagining it's not not quite that petty. I mean, you say not quite that petty, but it kind of is. (laughs) The other thing that is pretty commonly included in these contracts are confidentiality clauses and just seems shady off the bat when when there's terms of a contract that's being agreed upon by two different nations or at least nationally run organizations and businesses having large sections of that contract take place under the table certainly gives an air of corruption definitely a questionable transaction and the culmination of all of these things is that nations are forced to give up things like resources at levels that they might not otherwise or forced to give in to political influence. And we'll talk about a couple specific examples of that shortly. That's where I think some of the big concerns come up when we look at the short-term benefits of getting an influx of capital and how it can help in the current circumstances that the country may be experiencing, but without the access to both more resources and more political influence, long-term development seems to probably be stunted quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Why don't we give a little bit of context here? So we have these theoretically dangerous relationships and contracts that various nations are entering into with China. How much of these countries' economies are controlled or defined by this debt? So Chinese loans account for, in the most extreme example, 10% of Kenya's total debt. One of the projects that China has with Kenya is a 3.6 billion US dollar railway. And after this initial investment, which obviously has to be paid back, this railway actually lost Kenya $200 million in three years. So they have this debt hanging over their country for a project that is now losing them money. Similarly, Nigeria has about three to 4% of its total debt being attributed to Chinese loans. And like Kenya had another substantial investment in uh, their railway system as well, 1.3 billion US dollars. Most of these relationships are for infrastructure. So we mentioned in Tanzania, this is done for housing. In Kenya and Nigeria, these things are done for railways. Theoretically, these are things under our episode theme of development these are things that are necessary for a country to develop. So this sort of infrastructure investment should be a good deal. But in Kenya's case, for example, losing $200 million in three years, but having this debt kind of hanging over your head means that China as the creditor has a lot of power. And we talked earlier about them forcing countries to give up resources, forcing them to give up political influence, right? If you are owed money and you're not getting that money back, you're going to get something. Is China going to start breaking kneecaps across the continent? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) For context, though, let's take a second and step away from the continent of Africa and across the ocean, looking at the United States. We said that three to four percent of Nigeria's total debt is owned by China. But in the United States, 3.6 percent of our debt is owned by China. So as much as we might be worried on behalf of these African nations for them giving away so much of their debt to one particular country, we're kind of doing the same thing and we don't seem to be worried by it. Well, it's a lot different, the kind of debt that we have with China than developmental projects incur. Most of the debt that foreign creditors have for the United States is bond or promissory or otherwise very secure, very safe debt. It's not contingent on whether or not the infrastructure project starts to lose money and could change the ability of the country to pay back the debt on time. That's true if we think that bonds are a safe investment or we think that China is not going to demand its money back in an act of financial war to attack the U.S. economy. But those things aren't necessarily true. That's always a possibility. But generally speaking, it's a safer form of debt than it would be for an infrastructure project. I suppose. But I think I'm going back to the term of debt trap diplomacy as something that's leveraged by the United States against these African countries as the U.S. attempts to caution them against a relationship with China. 
It does start to seem a bit hypocritical, though, when a similar amount of U.S. debt is owned by China as debt to many of these African countries. The United States is hypocritical. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. Knock me over with a feather. I don't disagree with individuals that say Africa should be cautious about entering into relationships with China. But thus far, there's little evidence that it's looking to take advantage of these economic relations. Um, As they progress, maybe that changes. Not really sure. It sounds somewhat patronizing for the United States to tell other nations what to do with their own political agency and their financial situations. It presumes that a lot of those countries don't have the ability to understand what they're doing and getting themselves into and couldn't weigh the pros and cons of it themselves without having the United States big brother the situation for them. Right. It's certainly problematic to assume that Africa is incapable of looking after itself. And that feeds into, I think, a larger narrative about the reason that Africa is not developing is because it doesn't have the capacity right? It just doesn't have the intellectualism in existence on the continent to figure out how to develop itself rather than maybe historical challenges or, you know, past events that have put it behind the eight ball in terms of its attempt to develop. Feeding into those narratives is probably not the best thing to do. And telling Africa it's making a mistake as it decides for itself who it partners with in an attempt to develop infrastructure within the continent is certainly problematic. And it is to a degree hypocritical. While it is what could be considered safe debt for the Chinese government to own so much of the United States government, there are a lot of people who are frustrated by how much foreign debt the United States has. That is uh, puts them into a very vulnerable position. And they're then advising other countries not to put themselves in a vulnerable position, but their development may be hinging upon it. You point out the difference between the type of debt that the U.S. has with China and the type of debt that African nations have with China. And it might seem as though China is taking advantage of countries in a situation like that with higher interest rates or stricter contracts. But realistically, I'm not sure it's fair to blame China for this, uh, as opposed to just criticize your favorite, Kelly, capitalism in general. Um, when, When you make a riskier investment, which like you're saying, these infrastructure investments are, there's going to be stricter contracts. You're going to ask for higher interest rates, et cetera. It's a kind of a standard practice for lenders. So I'm not sure it's fair to criticize China. And I certainly don't see the US offering better terms to Africa. So you know, if you're not going to do anything about it, you could be quiet instead of criticizing their choices. You put that much more politely than I would have. How would you have put it? I usually could shut the fuck up. <laughs> Let's go. We got Kelly riled up. (laughs) The one thing we are seeing, though, so as of now, there's no evidence of China necessarily abusing these contracts or these loans financially. There is a pressure for these financial relations to turn into political relations. I think that China is realizing just geopolitically, especially for things like, say, voting in the United Nations. It does need support. And when votes take place based on nations, the more nations you can build relations with that are strong enough to sway them to vote your way on particular topics, the better off you're going to do. In particular, something we've done an episode on, uh, potentially China is looking for support for votes that relate to Taiwan. Exactly. There are potential votes that can happen in the United Nations pertaining to Taiwanese statehood or future military interventions or responses, anything that could be perceived as potential threats to Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan, China would have an interest in currying as much favor as possible among other countries. And one of the ways that you can do that is through financial influence. Is that a bad thing, though? I think that it doesn't take too much imagination to see countries that vote alongside the United States for similar reasons. Uh, Israel. (laughs) Exactly what I was thinking. It's probably not a great thing, but it's definitely not a unique thing. So China doing it doesn't particularly raise any specific concerns when it's a practice that basically all countries with wealth engage in. 
Right. And this makes me think that U.S. criticism of bilateral agreements between China and Tanzania, Nigeria, Kenya, etc., is less about we really don't like the deal and more about we really don't like that we're not the ones making the deal. Mm, I, I think that you might be right there. And proof of that is the West is changing its approach of how it deals with African nations to counter China. What used to happen is the United States would approach African nations with aid or charity. And the response to that from a lot of nations was, we would like it if you treated us like a partner, not a victim, especially considering the history of colonialism on the continent. A lot of foreign aid is supplied with little input from the people who get the aid provided to them. And it is, again, somewhat patronizing and lacks a lot of respect for what might be the priorities of the country who receives the aid. So it makes sense that if the U.S. wants to gain more influence in a lot of these countries, taking a more diplomatic approach with the aid and giving a lot more respect to the diplomatic channels within the countries themselves and respecting their autonomy would probably go pretty far for them. And a lot of that aid came with similar restrictions to what we're discussing with China. So if China says, hey, we have a business partnership with you, so we would like you to vote in our favor on things like Taiwan, we certainly can't say that the United States is giving aid to Africa without strings because that's not the case. They want them to establish certain kinds of government. They want them to establish certain types of social policies. It's a very parallel situation, uh, whereas one, though, with China, seems to treat African nations as business partners, and the other, with the West, seems to treat them as victims that need to be saved. A striking example of how the U.S. has been paternalistic with foreign aid when it comes to Africa would be the abstinence before marriage campaign that it undertook on the continent, which blew through $1.4 billion over 10 years in an effort to try to combat the AIDS crisis. Can you imagine that had to be so infuriating if you are, say, Nigeria, and you're dealing with an HIV crisis and you're dealing with underdevelopment and the United States has $1.4 billion and they spend it on telling people not to have sex before marriage rather than giving it to you to invest in infrastructure, housing, railways, electricity, etc. I would be so mad, especially if you look at American kids and ask yourself if they're practicing abstinence before marriage. I wonder how many condoms $1.4 billion could have purchased. What do you need condoms for if you're not having sex before marriage? Abstinence-only education basically forces people into a situation where they don't know how to have sex, but they have it anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's just one example of the West coming in. I guess you could say they have the best intentions in mind, but still just acting as a colonizer, ignoring the capacity of nations to determine for themselves what policies or strategies are best for their country. And so when China comes in and presents this narrative of them as a also developing country, a background similar to these nations in Africa, it has to be pretty appealing. It also gives the countries or other parties who might be considering the deals that China offers the opportunity to negotiate and ultimately to say no if they want to. Business partnerships allow for a better sense of equality and control over the process for both parties. And China's story is pretty appealing. China is the only nation in the world that has thus far managed to shift from developing to arguably developed, and they did it under the influence of the West. They've accomplished what most of these countries on the African continent are attempting to. So who are you going to pick as your business partner? If you have a choice between the West, who's in large part the reason you've got this problem in the first place, or China, who's coming in and saying, hey, we're going to work alongside you so that you can accomplish what we have. It's a choice between those two and those two alone. 
I think it's pretty clear that the choice would be for China. And that's the choice that Africa seems to be making so far. But it's important that we point out there is another option. And the alternative would be as opposed to international relationships, undergoing regional development. And as much as we want to highlight the individuality of separate African nations, it is important to recognize the things that they have in common. And those things go beyond simply geographic proximity. So the African Continental Free Trade Area, which they have apparently acronymed, which is the verb for to make an acronym that I just made up right now. The, the Josh lexicon forever expands. <laughs> so they've, they have acronymed the African Continental Free Trade Area to AFTA. They threw an extra F in there for no reason. But AFTA is a free trade area that encompasses most of Africa. It was established in 2018, brokered by the African Union, the AU. See, that one makes sense. And it was signed by 44 of the 55 member states. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, UNICA, UNICA, estimates that it will boost intra-African trade by 52%. Substantial there. A report by the World Bank anticipates that it could lift 30 million Africans out of extreme poverty, boost the incomes of nearly 70 million people, and generate $450 billion in income in 2035. So we start with a discussion about who do we choose between China or the West, predominantly the United States, but there is this regional trade block as an option if these nations are able to come together and work with each other and eliminate the need, at least to as extreme a level of the foreign intervention. It seems like that's a pretty sweet deal. So why would they even still need Chinese investment if this is something that they can generate themselves? Well, it is a lot slower. These countries working together is sustainable. It has its benefits, but it doesn't come with the influx of capital that a country like China can offer. And it does come with some challenges. Africa is slowly working through some of the historical divides that exist on the continent conflicts between nations or even intranational conflicts, civil wars and the like. And as it does, regional and continental partnerships like this become more and more likely and more and more profitable. We do have examples of regional agreements and organizations like this in other areas of the world, especially ones that have also had challenges in getting to a better state with their development. In particular, we can look to ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and that includes Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. And that particular organization has helped a lot of those countries make major shifts in development, although for the most part, I would argue that none of them were coming from quite the same position that a lot of the African nations are in. And some of them, Singapore I'm, I'm looking at in particular, are very well developed. True. But a lot of these countries also have a history of exploitation and coming together cooperatively like this definitely makes them stronger than they probably would have fared as individuals. And looking to another region of the world, we have Mercosur, which is a South American trading bloc that includes Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And it's also having some pretty substantial benefits to that region, although in this case, they have cherry-picked the strongest economies of the region. So again, there's certainly a precedent for these regional trade blocks to help the countries within them develop. Not sure if they are completely analogous or applicable to the nations that we're looking at on the continent of Africa, but it certainly provides hope and an alternative that doesn't come with the sort of patronizing, colonizing, abusive potential for international relations with countries like the United States or China. What also is a very pertinent issue to whatever future Africa has is a discussion of the natural resources that exist on the continent, which is probably a really strong reason that there is so much interest from countries like China. Let's look specifically to another one of the relationships that exists 
this one being between China and the Democratic Republic of Congo, they have a $9 billion US dollar infrastructure deal focused on mining operations in the Katanga province of the DRC. And this is where predominantly copper and cobalt are mined. Cobalt, in addition to being the best color of blue, is a metal that is used in cell phone manufacturing, specifically every iPhone or Android that pretty much anybody on the planet possesses has some cobalt in it. Is your nail polish currently cobalt? You know, I have a little bit of blue. I'm pretty sure it does not contain actual cobalt, but you could say that some of it might look like cobalt blue for sure. (laughs) Um, So China is providing $6 billion in infrastructure development and $3 billion that are going to mining efforts for copper and Kelly's favorite blue. In return, though, Chinese companies own 68% of the mine. So this is where we talk about abusive contract terms, uh, because critics are saying that this just incredibly devalues the mineral deposits in Katanga. And this is indicative not of this particular deal, but also just many of the deals that we've been discussing thus far between China and the various nations in Africa. They need the money. $9 billion of infrastructure is certainly something that is going to help the DRC now. But in return for that, they are giving away and then undervaluing the resources that they have. Is that a good investment long term? If they as a country are deciding it is a good investment, I'm not sure who we are on this podcast to say no, but it doesn't seem great. That's how investing goes, no matter who's doing it. Those who provide the investment tend to control the terms and ensure that they get a major benefit out of it. Otherwise, there's no incentive to be an investor in the first place. The issue, though, is not necessarily just the initial contract and the giving away of ridiculous percentages of ownership over your natural resources. The other problem here is that if you are looking to get the most bang for your buck out of resources, exporting raw materials is probably the least efficient way to do things. It's way more desirable, way more profitable to refine these materials uh, and preferably manufacture them into consumer or capital goods to sell for maximum profit. In this instance, those materials are getting refined and turned into the goods that are profitable, but it is China that is doing it, taking it out of Africa entirely when they do so and reaping all of the benefits of it. No reinvestment in the DRC, no ability for that wealth to compound and grow within the DRC in the way that it could otherwise if it was kept within domestic control. And the DRC recognized this and in 2017 attempted to implement policies to stop Chinese companies from exporting unprocessed copper and cobalt and asked them to refine all of its metals within the DRC. The issue here is shortly after the decision was reversed, and this is presumably due to pressure from China. And that's the problem. That's what we're talking about. And where even though there's questionable evidence whether or not this exists, the idea of debt trap diplomacy, where once you are indebted to a country, if you try to run your own nation in the way that you would like to, If you vote against China on a UN bill, if you try to implement a fiscal policy that runs counter to China's well-being, you deal with the pressure and they force you to reverse your decisions and capitulate to whatever it is that they would like you to be doing. And overall, 52% of exports from the entire continent of Africa are raw materials. Due to these contracts and the terms that have been set by influential countries, particularly China, they are locked into a system where they don't get the chance to develop because of the terms in a way that they could otherwise. This is the proverbial stuck between cobalt and a hard place. Cobalt's a metal, not a rock. Damn it. (laughs) I might not know much about cobalt, but this does remind me that we started the episode talking about Wakanda. And Wakanda did have the resource vibranium, for those of uh, you Marvel nerds 
out there, myself included. And it's interesting to just imagine in Wakanda, they kept and developed vibranium into all of the technology that we see in the movie. Imagine if they had shifted off somewhere else instead for a different country to refine. They took the cash for the metal. And even though they get that influx of cash, they give away the power to literally define and lead the world as a technological and economic superpower. And that seems to be the situation these African countries are forced into now. When you look at the totally real element vibranium and how much power it contains and the possibilities that come with it, it seems like a pretty natural allegory to a real resource that contains so much potential as well, which we see as an exploited resource on the African continent, and that being oil. Mm -hmm. This is the big, if we're going to talk raw material, natural resources, this is the elephant in the room, or I suppose it would be the dinosaur in the room. And oil comes with it, not just financial concerns uh, and profitability concerns, but also environmental concerns. Africa, in its attempt to develop, kind of has a choice here. Do they take the route that everyone else took through the Industrial Revolution and develop in as cheaply, efficiently a way possible, which would mean fossil fuels, etc.? Or do they take the opportunity to get on the green tech bandwagon early, the green energy bandwagon, and try to develop the right way? This has become a prominent focus in recent years because of the increasing threat that climate change has been posing to the world as a whole. Specifically, there has been a focus by climate scientists on African development utilizing fossil fuels, in part because they do use fossil fuels, but probably also in part because they are projected to use even more in the future as a part of their development. The 2021 UN Climate Summit cautioned Africa specifically against continual use. Many leading scientists believe that we are past the point of no return when it comes to climate change that essentially the only hope we have at this point is to stop using fossil fuels and creating greenhouse gases altogether, which would necessitate Africa included in that as a continent and all other countries would have to stop as well. So the obvious thing here is when the US and the EU and some of these countries that make up the UN Climate Summit have already gone through this process, fucked up the environment, and develop to the point where they are able to take a hit to their economies and still be fine, it's easy for them to say, oh, we should be shifting to green tech. It's almost absurd how little fossil fuel usage there is in Africa relative to the rest of the world, considering how much attention it's getting right now from all of these northern hemisphere countries. No African countries even make it to the list of top consumers. The 2021 top users were China with 157.65 exajoules, and that is the energy of a quintillion joules. First of all, I don't even know what a joule is. <laughs> Second of all, I can't even imagine what a quintillion is. And third of all, how is an exajoule the energy of a quintillion? Why don't they just call it a quintillion? Well, a quintillion's a, a type of number like billion or whatnot, and a joule is what you vape with. <laughs> okay, so they have 157.65 exavapes. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it that. That might be easier for people to quantify. The next top user was the United States with 92.97 exajoules. And do we have a number on where Africa's at? These numbers are accounted for country by country, but for example, South Africa, which is a pretty large country on the continent, in 2021 consumed enough energy that it amounted to 4.98 exajoules. So again, in contrast, China was at 157.6 and it, South Africa is at four. What is the entire continent of Africa at? Hold on to your butts. <laughs> the entire continent of Africa was at 20 exajoules. So less than a quarter of just the United States for an entire continent and Africa is who people's complaining about. Yeah. 
Awesome. And we wonder why they don't want to partner with us on stuff. The alternative to stopping development altogether would potentially be that countries that have developed further, who got there by either utilizing fossil fuels and or exploiting the continent, would then owe it to Africa, perhaps, or at least feel a moral obligation to contribute to sustainable development for Africa in ways that avoid the use of further fossil fuels. I think realistically, we could, as the EU, the United States, just offset the overall fossil fuel usage for the entire continent of Africa. Like we should be the ones taking the hit and reducing our emissions and probably allowing Africa with their 20 exajoules a year to do what they need to do to develop, considering that once countries have developed, then it's realistic for them to shift over to green tech rather than asking them to do it right off the bat. It's not only hypocritical, it avoids any sort of ownership of behavioral wrongs in the international space, considering how disgusting a lot of these countries are that then claim to have the moral authority on the climate. Mm -hmm. All of this being said, though, I I certainly don't think it's fair to force a country to shirk their development and not allow them to make the same mistakes that you made. But if there is a way for Africa to develop without fossil fuel, I do think it's sensible to say, hey, we've learned if we knew during the Industrial Revolution what we know now, potentially the United States would have avoided becoming so dependent on fossil fuels in the first place. And potentially Africa as a continent can learn from the mistakes of the past. There are reasons to be concerned about the fossil fuel usage in Africa altogether for the same reasons you've just discussed about dependency on it, but because the rate at which they're going to be using fuels in the future is of a concern. The entire population of the continent is anticipated to double by 2050, which would mean more users of fossil fuels overall. Furthermore, with the way that the oil cartels, specifically Saudi Arabia, have been behaving lately with cutting off access and enough volume for users like the United States, pressure on African producers of oil is also increasing. And that makes it so hard to literally, the way that the world is right now, there's a demand for this product that certain nations in Africa have in abundance And despite that, you've got people out there saying, no, 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 you should not take advantage of it. Right. And it's not just Middle Eastern nations. Also, look at what's happening with Russia right now. A desperation around the world to reduce dependence on Russian oil speaks to an even greater increased opportunity for Africa. And if they can just use this as a springboard to achieve a certain level of development, then they would be able to shift into more green technology once they have the capital for it. But it's just hard to feel as though anybody can justify asking them to do that in the stage of development they're in now. And allowing them to use fossil fuels to their advantage to get to that point of development is probably the one that gives them the most agency. And let's face it, the rest of the world is still using fossil fuels And despite decreasing amounts of fossil fuels being used, it's still way too much. Okay, as opposed to doing it for the well-being of the rest of the world and combating climate change, and obviously Africa's affected by climate change as well. In fact, it might be affected um, even more so than the West in a lot of places and a lot of ways. So it is in their own best interest on that front. But besides that, one of Africa's biggest problems in is a general lack of economic diversity. In fact, the continent is home to eight of the world's 15 least economically diversified countries. And establishing an economy reliant on fossil fuels doubles down on that, especially as a lot of the world, as much as we say the United States, for example, is reliant on oil, a lot of the world is moving away from fossil fuel as its primary energy source. So for Africa to begin development and use that as a way to attempt to grow their economies when the customer base seems to be shrinking, 
might be a mistake just economically. There are a number of African countries that do have a promising outlook when it comes to renewable resources and energy consumption. A few of the examples here are that Kenya has an abundant geothermal electrical infrastructure, which when combined with hydroelectric, wind, and solar power, accounts for 75% of its grid. So it is definitely heavily focused on renewable resources currently. As of this summer, there's 22 countries in Africa that are using renewables as their main source of energy. So we said that inside of AFCTA, there's 44 nations. So that means approximately half of that particular trade block is using uh, renewables as the main source of energy. So yeah, I think what you're saying is right. The countries that can do this are making a decision on their own because they're adults and they're capable of thinking, unlike what some of the West might suggest. And the ones that aren't doing this, maybe they can't. Maybe it's not a good idea for them. There are a couple of countries in particular that are examples of resource-heavy countries that are just untapped currently. The Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, has a ton of potential hydroelectric futures with all of the water that courses through that country. And other countries, especially ones on the coast like Namibia, can definitely harness the wind in the future as well. Mm -hmm. But they need money to do this, to make these initial investments and actually make it worth their while. And I suppose going back to what we talked about with relations with China, if you have the Democratic Republic of Congo that has the ability to tap into renewable resources, but through desperation and a need for immediate capital or infrastructure, they have to give away 68% of their other resources, uh, it's going to be really difficult to do that. And it brings us back to the, how is this going to get done? They either need to develop as they see fit and use the fossil fuels, or there needs to be some sort of charitable or benevolent intervention. And they're being demonized if they choose one, and they're probably being exploited if they choose the other. It's a very hard position to be in. Or maybe the countries that are complaining about their choice to use fossil fuels should just give them fair investment contracts so that they have resources and the capacity to do the things you're demanding they do. We have hopped all over the continent of Africa in this discussion today. And in fact, the world, when it comes to the people who have an interest in Africa's development, China in particular, but also the United States. When we look at the options that Africa has for development, whether domestically or internationally, and the resources that exist in Africa and whether or not they should be utilized the way that they currently are or maybe in the future, I think we can head into our adjudication now, Josh. And I'm wondering, where do you stand on Africa as a whole with its future and its self-determination? Can the vision of Wakanda be true? Mm, that's the hope, right? And that's what watching that Marvel movie is supposed to put in the mind of all the viewers, that that is a possibility, that the continent of Africa can develop and take its place as a world leader on various fronts. Is it possible? One of the most important features of Wakanda in the movie is its ability to stay isolated, right? They used their technology to literally hide themselves from the rest of the world. And that allowed them to develop without external interference. And I think that they chose that in particular for Wakanda as a contrast to how the continent of Africa developed in the real world. And that development was defined by, we'll call them relationships with other countries and regions of the world. And those relationships typically didn't go so well for Africa. And so I think that's the biggest question is given where Africa is now, right? We can't change the past. We can't change the current economic or social position of the countries on the continent. Do they still have the capacities? There's still hope for them to develop. I think potentially if they can learn from some of the things that Wakanda did, and I know it's a fake country, I know it's imaginary, but I think that, you know, the writers of Wakanda as a country had Africa in mind and do have a vision forward 
for the continent and specific countries on the continent. And I think there's a couple important lessons there. One is diversification leading to self-sufficiency. Countries in Africa cannot be overly dependent on one product, whether it be oil as the predominant one. A lot of countries uh, are agricultural in nature. We've talked about that in our subsidies episode, how a lot of uh, countries in Africa are very reliant on agriculture, which is a very boom or bust industry. I think that the prioritization of development of materials rather than selling raw goods is huge. When the DRC tried to force China to process materials in the country rather than exporting them back to China and turning them into consumer or capital goods there, they need to get back on that train. They need to double down on that and not let themselves be bullied out of those policies. I think that a commitment to regional partnerships and a vision that looks past the immediate to the future is going to be necessary. But all of that being said, I also think that there needs to be some sort of just mindset shift from the rest of the world, whether it's a country like China that seems to view the continent as a payday, or whether it's from the West that seems to view the continent as a this helpless thing that it needs to make decisions on their behalf. If those mindsets stay in place, rather than working with Africa as a equal partner, it's it's going to be tough. I don't want to say no. I don't want to say the vision of Wakanda can't be true, but it's going to be difficult. You more hopeful than me, less hopeful than me. It's probably pretty obvious that I don't carry much hope with me in any discussion that we have. So why would I start hoping now? Before I get into what I think actually should be the case and whether or not there could be a real life Wakanda, I would like to point out that we in the Northern Hemisphere, we in developed countries are afforded a comfort level and the privilege to utilize resources in a way that people on the continent of Africa most certainly will not get to the same degree. We have about 28 times the size of a carbon footprint, you and I as Americans, than the average Nigerian has. We just exist here and don't particularly do anything to increase that. We're not, you know, captains of industry. We're not out there creating refined oil or what have you. We just consume more carbon and make more waste because we're Americans. So with that, I see that the entire continent of Africa is owed a debt by most of the rest of the world. There are so many resources that have been exploited. We didn't even talk about some of the other social ills that Western imperial powers perpetrated against Africa as a continent. That wasn't really the discussion we were meant to have today. But all of those things taken into consideration and the way that the exploitation of the current state of Africa is undertaken by countries like China and the United States, it's pretty obvious that Africa should get to do whatever Africa wants. They know what's best for them. And they also should not have any sort of pressure or guilt from developed countries for developing the way that makes the most sense for them. If China or the United States or anybody, the Dutch, for example, want to have any influence in Africa whatsoever, it should be cash investments and shutting up. That should be about the end of it. Give every single country the amount of money it needs to develop in the way that they want to, and then leave the continent. That would be the only way that I could see a potential Wakanda happening in the future. Massive influx of cash, no Europeans anywhere. So that's not going to happen. You, I was going to say you are the most optimistic pessimist that I know. I don't know where you hear any optimism in that because it is a farcical scenario. There's no way that's ever going to happen. Oh, okay. I thought you... <laughs> well, that might be what makes, like we said at the beginning of the episode, Black Panther such an appealing movie is because it does put up that narrative of this is how things should be, could have been. Curious to see the new movie comes out on November 11th. And if any of our listeners happen to watch that, I'm curious to see, you know, once again, kind of how they portray it. There were certainly a lot of undertones of our discussion in the original Black Panther. I'm curious if they continue that into this movie. Hopefully they do. And it doesn't turn into 
a sequel cash grab, uh, like many of the other <laughs> Disney movies. If you want to let us know your thoughts on the movie or Africa's development in general, whether you're more hopeful than Kelly, you can, as usual, reach us on our socials, Facebook and Twitter at IndubitablyPod or email us at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.